It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We're talking this evening with best-selling author and astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, How the Oldest Book in the Bible Answers Today's Scientific Questions. Dr. Ross, typically we see, in addition to uh, some of the naysayers that will look at the gaps in time in the Genesis account and say, here, there you go, because it's not all explained, therefore it can't be true. There are also some of the naysayers that will look at so-called um, bad designs in nature, maybe better put uh, faulty or what we would consider to be useless, like, for example, what exactly does the appendix do? Uh, and we'll look at this and say that this is a reason to believe that the because it's not a perfect design, therefore it can't be God's design. What do you say to that? Well, you know, these uh, so-called crippled designs are a great way to test our different creation evolution beliefs. I mean, uh, you know, maybe we haven't looked hard enough for the purpose or the design of, say, the appendix. When I was a child, uh, medical scientists felt that the appendix was completely useless. And so if you ever had abdominal surgery, they would routinely remove the appendix because of their belief that it was a holdover from an evolutionary accident. Today we know that the appendix plays no role in human digestion, but it plays a critical role in the immune response system. So today medical doctors do not remove the appendix unless it's inflamed. And likewise useless organs uh, such as the adenoids and tonsils were once thought to play no no purpose or role in the human body. And uh, now we recognize that they too play a role in the human immune response system. So sometimes the design is in a different area than what we would never normally anticipate. And so here's the way you can put it to the test. Okay, if God's responsible for this, then we would expect that everything within the human body or everything within the cell uh, would have some purpose or function. And maybe we don't know what it is right now, but let's uh, continue to search. And if we find increasing evidence for design and function as we learn more and more, uh, about uh, different organisms' morphology and uh, their biomolecular structure, and that would be evidence that God was responsible for that. But if we find as we learn more and more, and we're finding more and more junk and more and more crippled designs, then that would be evidence that, uh, that hey, it's some kind of natural evolutionary explanation. Now, there's one important caveat. We would expect that there would be a small amount of... Um, uh, quote, uh, useless function uh, in response to how long an organism has been on the face of the earth. Because after all, the Bible tells us in Romans 8 that the entire creation is subject to the law of decay. And so that law of decay will bring about some crippling of the divine designs. But in the case of the human species, we've been here for such an incredibly brief period of time that we would expect very little accumulation of, quote, junk as a result of the second law of thermodynamics. 
So perhaps less emphasis on uh, the evolution of man and a little bit more patience and more focus on the evolution of our understanding is a better way to approach some of this. Well, we would expect that a lot of the desire would be hidden from view because we haven't looked. That's the principle you see in both Job and the creation texts and Psalms, namely that the more we examine the record of nature, the more we'll discover the handiwork of God. And so medical science is a great example of how that is exactly played out. Part of this uh, discovery process, you spent some time, uh, some fair amount of time inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. To the lessons of the animals, the so-called ten animals of Job, uh, in our time that remains, uh, Doctor, spend a moment and kind of shed some light on that for us. Well, that's something that aroused my curiosity when I first began to examine the Book of Job, is why do we see this list of ten specific bird and mammal species in Job 38 and 39? You know, it's kind of like a top ten list. And so as I began to study the animals that are mentioned in the text, I realized every one of them played a crucial role in launching human civilization. And that uh, those people groups that lacked access to those animals were never able to get themselves out of the Stone Age culture. Uh, but those cultural groups that had access to those animals were not only able to launch civilization, but to advance it significantly. And I think in the 21st century, we often think, hey, we did it all. But the truth is, we would have gotten nowhere if God hadn't given us these specific bird and mammal species, and if we uh, hadn't really taken the time to tame them and begin to to use them, uh, not only to launch our civilization, but also gain some measure of peace and enjoyment from our relationships with them. And I think what's really phenomenal, too, is you look at creatures... Uh, you know, like the ostrich uh, or the goat uh, or the donkey or the horse, uh, what we're realizing is they not only fulfilled a critical role in launching human civilization, they're fulfilling a completely different role in assisting humanity towards the end of civilization when we have global high-tech technology. Uh, So goats, for example, are serving a very different purpose today than they did at the beginning of civilization. And the fact that these creatures have multiple uh, ways of serving and pleasing humanity uh, to deal with humanity in different cultural contexts, that is, to me, a clear piece of evidence for the fingerprint of God in designing these creatures for our specific benefit. Final word, you spent some time on a key point. We began our conversation with curiosity on the topic of why pick the book of Job, since it uh, in large part is regarded as many as almost singularly a book about suffering, to be sure that it is. But at the end, you also make an interesting conclusion inside the pages of Hidden Treasures in the book of Job, and that is how the book overall points to man's greatest need. Elaborate on that point. Well, uh, what God does is he talks about these animals that he gave to serve and please us, and makes the point that we humans have been able to tame every one of them, and he mentions the Leviathan and the Behemoth as the two most difficult to tame of all the bird and mammal species and higher reptiles that God gave us. But he says there's one species you're not able to tame, and that is a proud human heart. And God steps in and says, only I can bring humility to a proud human being. You can't do it. And makes the point that we all struggle with pride, and without God's help, we're not going to overcome that pride. And just like these animals need to come to us, we need to go to God and get the humility we need in order to form a relationship with Him and successful relationships with one another. So what I love about the book of Job, 
the last few chakras close with a clear gospel message of how we can develop a successful relationship with our Creator. And if you look at Job's comments, he actually lays out from the evidence of nature all the critical points uh, for salvation, concluding in verse nine, in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I will see him on the last day uh, with my own eyes and my own flesh. Why? Because Job recognized his need for a Savior and a Redeemer, and it committed his life to that uh, divine Redeemer. Speaking is deeper toward the answers that we seek in the creation of man, a look at today's scientific questions answered inside the book of Job, the new book, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, newly published by Baker Books. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the entire Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our guest, its author, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, is always a delight to have you on the program. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, thank you, sir. We are back here, and we invite you to join us with thoughts and comments for astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross, president and founder of Reasons to Believe. His new book is called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. Now, I'm curious. We typically think of Genesis as a great place to start in terms of finding answers related to the origins of man, today's scientific questions, things of that sort. What led you, Dr. Ross, to begin exploring these questions and their ultimate answers inside the book of Job, a book that most of us, I think, generally just kind of regard as a book largely about suffering? Well, it is a book about the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. But of all the books of the Bible, it contains the most content about creation and science. And I think for good reason, because there's internal evidence in the book of Job that it's the first book that was given to humanity of all the Bible's books. I mean, you see references uh, in the book of Job to a patriarchal sacrificial system, which means it must have predated the time of Moses. It's also written as an easily memorized uh, poem, and therefore it indicates that it was probably uh, given to humanity before Hebrew became a written language. You also notice the text is devoid of any references to nations, uh, merely just uh, towns and city-states. So given that it is the first book uh, given to humanity of all the Bible's books, we shouldn't at all be surprised that it lays the foundation for creation. And the other thing that caught my attention is just how much Moses leaves out about creation chronology uh, in Genesis uh, 1 through 11. And the stuff that he leaves out that's really crucial is material that's already described in the book of Job. So the fact that Moses uh, edited his material on creation and built on the foundation that's already in Job, I think again argues that we need to take a fresh look at the book of Job, not only as a book that deals with evil and suffering, uh, but also a book that lays the foundation uh, for creation theology. So the notion here, Doctor, if we take this all in proper and appropriate chronological order, while some might try to be dismissive, in a way, of the Genesis account because of the so-called gaps that are in there, for example, the big time gap from uh, creation of the universe to formation of Earth, and folks will kind of say, well, because of all of that, we don't understand what was going on. That must have been left out because there was no answer. In reality, what you're suggesting is it would have been repetitive because a lot of the gaps and, and items, the key items within the timeline, actually appear in an earlier writing, the book of Job. Exactly. I mean, Job is the one that addresses what God was doing between creating the universe and forming the earth. So there's no need for Moses to cover that again. 
Walk us through some of the highlights, if you would. I don't want to give away the entire punchline of the book, but in terms of of some of the highlights of the revelations that you found working through the pages of the book of Job in in terms of some of the the key uh, mile markers, so to speak, in creation. Well, I think what really got my attention is how much of the creation content in the book of Job deals with the second origin of life. I mean, you look at Genesis chapter 1, there are three separate origins of life. Uh, creation day one is when God creates life that's physical, purely physical in its form. But in creation day five, God creates the soulish animals, animals that are not only physical, but soulish, and that they manifest mind, will, and emotions, and are capable of forming relationships, not only with one another, but with a higher species, namely us human beings. And last of all, God creates the one and only species, human beings, the descendants of Adam and Eve, uh, that can relate to God himself. And it was Job that said in the 12th chapter, look to these soulish animals, look to the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and they will teach you lessons about yourself and lessons about God. And so as you get into, say, chapters 37, 38, 39, all the way to 42, uh, what you notice is a theme that as you examine these birds and mammals, you can see how strongly they are motivated to relate to human beings and serve and please human beings. Well, we're designed the same way. We're also designed and highly motivated to serve a higher being, namely God himself, uh, and to serve and to please him. Um, and likewise, when we look at these birds and mammals, we can see the degree to which human sin and abuse has crippled the ability of these birds and mammals to relate to us and serve and please us. Instead of coming to us, often they run away in fear because they know what we're going to do to them. Well, likewise, the sin within us has damaged our ability to come to God and to serve and please him. So in many respects, these birds and mammals are placed by God here in this planet, not only to further our well-being and launching and sustaining civilization and serving and pleasing us, but also teaching us critical spiritual lessons about ourselves and about the problems we have in trying to relate to God. And the thing I've noticed as I've traveled around the world in my speaking ministry is you don't find atheists in the country. You find them in cities. And in cities, people are exposed to what man has created. But when you're out there in the countryside, you're exposed to what God has created. And therefore, I think that offers a good explanation why rural individuals uh, believe in God, whereas many that live in cities, where they're cut off from contact with the birds and mammals, opt for agnosticism or atheism. I I frequently uh, pondered in places like the Yosemite Valley, for example, or or up in the beautiful mountains of Lake Tahoe, or other parts of, of the splendor of uh, the Grand Canyon, uh, how it is that someone can look at this and come to the conclusion that uh, it was the uh, the organization out of chaos resulting from the Big Bang uh, as a means of being dismissive of God's handiwork in all of this. Well, I've often taken scientists out into the high Sierras, for example, and get them out into a subalpine meadow, and just say, you know, what do you think of this place? And they just say, the beauty is awesome. I said, how do you explain that awesome beauty? And it's a wonderful opportunity to introduce them to the God that created it all. Whereas when you're stuck in some office in a big city, uh, often uh, people don't have that kind of response. 
We lean quite heavily, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Ross, on the Genesis account for uh, how the world came to be. And certainly there, there are lots of details in there. And yet, from what you're suggesting, as you work through the creation miracles um, in Job 38, 37, 39, it seems as if we could more accurately put, perhaps, that we get more details about man's fall in Genesis and more details about the creation of the universe and specifically Earth and the preparation of same to sustain life in the book of Job? Is that a fair uh, conclusion? It is. I think both points are valid. I mean, uh, for example, when you go through the creation days in Genesis 1, it implies that God created the sun before he went through his activity the six days. Um, you know, where, for example, it, it says in Genesis creation day 1, let there be light. doesn't say that God created the light or made the light. uses the Hebrew verb hayah, let there be light. And in creation day 4, the text says, let there be the great lights. Again, it doesn't say he created them or made them, let them be. And uh, what you notice on creation day 4, this is the first time that the atmosphere goes from being permanently overcast to at least occasionally transparent. And uh, what does verse 15 say? It says, so that the creatures would now have signs to mark seasons, days, and years. Bacteria and insects don't need to have that information, but the higher animals do. But when you go to Job 38, verses 8 and 9, it makes it really explicit that it's dark on the surface of the waters in the context of the events before creation day one, not because there was no sun or stars, but because God had blanketed the seas of the earth with cloud layers that prevented the light that came through. Mm. Uh, Job 38, 9 and 10 makes the point, or remember 8 and 9, uh, that God had blanketed the seas with clouds, and those blankets kept the seas dark. So where Genesis 1 implies that it's dark in the beginning because of the earth's cloud layer, uh, notice that Job 38 is explicit in identifying the clouds as the cause of the darkness rather than the lack of the light of the sun, moon, and stars. And so that allows you to look at Genesis 1 and say, okay, in the beginning, Earth had an opaque atmosphere. Creation day one, the atmosphere became translucent, where light could pass through, but it's still overcast. And on creation day four, the atmosphere gets transformed again from being translucent to transparent. And that relieves Genesis 1 of the most major ridicule uh, of its accuracy uh, from scientific uh, skeptics. Part of the challenge here, perhaps, that we are trying to think of this in a very linear, a traditional linear fashion, uh, I would relate it to maybe you know, the assembly line uh, making automobiles, and that we would somehow believe that you have to begin most naturally and logically with the chassis, a frame, uh, the wheelbase, and then upon which you'll put the interior, you'll install the motor, you'll install the transmission. There, there's a very specific linear fashion in which all of this takes place to wind up with an automobile. It would be kind of foolhardy to suggest get the whole vehicle put together, and then once having done so, install the interior. That would just seem to be contrary. Have we kind of tried to force God into a very linear fashion according to our own thinking? Well, the text does say that we are created in the image of God, so we shouldn't be surprised that the way we create and design things is similar to how God does. And, you know, God could do it all at once, or he could use a step-by-step method. 
And uh, Genesis 1, uh, by using the structure of the six creation days, tells us it's step by step. And likewise, Job 38 and 39 uh, establishes it step by step. And from a human perspective, we realize that's the most efficient way to create or design anything. And uh, therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, God being the kind of God, perfect God that he is, uh, uses the most efficient process available uh, to create and design. Uh, but one of the things I think we need to appreciate is that the Bible is a collection of 66 books, not just one book. And that uh, if you go through the 66 books of the Bible, you find over two dozen chapter lengths or longer uh, texts that deal with creation. And therefore, what we uh, searchers of truth need to do is actually examine all the creation texts in the Bible and inter interpret them as consistently and literally as possible. But I would argue a great place to begin is the book of Job, and then build in Genesis 1 through 11, as well as uh, Proverbs 8, uh, Psalm 104, uh, Psalm 147 and 148, uh, the creation chapters in Isaiah, uh, and then go on into the texts in Romans and Revelation. And if you go on our website at reasons.org, we actually list every major creation text in the Bible. And we do that to encourage people to integrate consistently across all of God's revelation. If you've just joined our conversation today, astrophysicist Dr. Hugh Ross with a Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. He, of course, is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. His latest book called Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, uh, the oldest book in the Bible, answers today's scientific questions. When we come back, uh, we'll talk a bit more about the creation miracles of Job 37, 38, and 39, and look, too, at the ten animals of Job. I'm Craig Roberts. Our conversation with astrophysicist and best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, I've always wondered, why would you spend $2 million of your own money to get a job that lasts just two years with no guarantee of it being renewed, pays you only $175,000 a year, and it's all because of your love for country? Yeah, right. We saw recently, if you are viewers of 60 Minutes, the exposing of the insider trading benefits that we saw uh, Steve Croft uh, try to address with our own uh, former House Speaker and uh, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi here of San Francisco. Boy, she didn't like that conversation, did she? Well, if you think that uh, Steve Croft of CBS was the one that actually pulled the cover on the whole issue of the insider trading deal that Congress enjoys, no, not actually. In fact, well before Steve Croft talking about this publicly, my next guest had, in fact, uh, very much at his topic of an expose book he's written called Throw them all out. How politicians and their friends get rich off insider stock tips, land deals, and cronyism that would send the rest of us to prison. Peter Schweitzer, thanks so much for being with us tonight on the program. I'm glad we have finally a, a chance to have you on the show, Peter. Oh, it's great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. And I've always wondered, you know, for years, I thought, you know, boy, the amount of money that these guys spend to get this job that barely pays $175,000 a year, there's got to be some kind of a story behind the story. And sure enough, inside the pages of your new book, you reveal just exactly what the story is. 
Yeah, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at um, politicians and thinking, okay, well, they're getting rich, they're taking money into the table, they're getting bribes, uh, and certainly there are some that do that, but, but a far more insidious uh, problem is what I call legal graft, and that is their ability to do things that are legal for them to do. Uh, the rest of us would be another story, but that includes things like insider trading, special land deals, uh, getting IPO shares of stock, uh, that really are legalized bribery, and it helps explain in part why so many people come to Washington relatively middle class uh, and leave very rich, or come to Washington pretty rich and leave even more rich. Uh, and the reason is because they get all these uh, uh, sort of perks with the job, as it were, uh, that again, really comes about because the legal code covers us but doesn't cover them. Well, that's the amazing part of your book, uh, Throw Them All Out, the fact that they have, since they write the laws, they have exempted themselves from things like insider trading. So Martha Stewart, for example, we all know the story. She sold about $230,000 of M-clone shares. Um, she ended up paying a penalty of almost as much, $195,000, for simply avoiding about fifty grand in losses. She did five months jail time, five months uh, home confinement, two years probation. She could have faced 10 years, and that was just this horrible crime that she committed. And yet, ironically, let's talk about a California congressman, Daryl Issa, whose tax return in 19, I'm sorry, in 2009 showed that his net worth was about $150 million. A year later, he's worth $295 million. He's, he's managed to double his net worth, Daryl Issa has, Peter, in just one year, and nobody asks any questions. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the problem is is that it's a, a pattern that you see in all kinds of ways. Certainly there are people that, uh, uh, you know, let's say they inherit money or they hit it big, but the problem is is that they're just, there's a pattern that just doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, and and i give you a couple of cases, one Republican, one Democrat, that I talk about in the book. Two speakers of the House, uh, Dennis Hastert, who was Speaker of the House uh, from the late 1990s to the mid-2000s. When he became Speaker of the House, his net worth was around $300,000. Uh, when he left less than a decade later as Speaker, it was up to $11 million. How do you do that when you're earning $175,000 a year? Well, in his case, he did something called the land deal. And again, this is completely legal, and even the ethics committees say it's ethical, although I don't think the rest of us would share that opinion. What he did was buy 333 acres of land in rural Illinois, where he's from. A few months after that, he put in an earmark to the federal highway bill to build something called the Prairie Parkway, $207 million of our money to build this highway. You've probably already guessed that this highway just happened to run right along the property that he had bought just a few months earlier. Circumstantial, it's coincidental, Peter, I'm sure. <laughs> One heck of a coincidence. He was able to turn around and sell that property yet less than a year later for more than twice what he paid for it. So he netted $2 million on that one transaction alone. Uh, to give you another example, uh, that would be Nancy Pelosi, who was the Speaker of the House that followed Hastert. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, when she came into Congress, had a net worth of around $3 million. 
uh, over the next 20 years, it went up 876%, Whoa. which means they were averaging around 24% per year compounded return on their investments. Now, I'm certainly, you know, there are things in there that were just straight and they got lucky on, but one of the things that Nancy Pelosi has been uh, very active in doing is getting IPO shares of stock, and this happens to come from a company or companies that have business before the house. And IPOs, for those who aren't familiar, are initial public offerings of stock. If you come in the friends and family round of it, basically somebody gives you stock that you can buy very cheaply, and the day that the company goes public, you can double or triple your money. This is something that Visa did when she was Speaker of the House in 2008. She literally netted $100,000 in one day, thanks to the access to these uh, special shares of stock, um, and then this happened at a time when she was Speaker, and there were two pieces of legislation that Visa did not want to pass out of the House. And guess what? Neither one of them ever even got a, a vote on the House floor. Uh, for most people, that would be a huge conflict of interest and would lead to allegations of uh, uh, you know, bribery or some form of uh, quid pro quo. But in Congress, this is deemed ethical and legal. Well, let's put this into a context that all of us can perhaps relate to. Were a case to come before a judge, say for an individual to whom the judge was related or a company in which the judge had interests, uh, the judge would most naturally, if he or she is ethical and is following the, the, the rule book for judicial ethics, would recuse him or herself. They would, they would recognize the conflict of interest not in the public interest, and as a result, they would decline to participate, um, uh, granting any sort of judgment. They would decline participating in the case. Uh, but this is not the case when it comes to the United States Congress, because they get to make up the rules, Peter, and they get to determine what's ethical and what's not ethical based on what's in their own personal best interest, not of the country. Am I right? No, you are exactly right. Wow. Uh, in fact, in the case of a judge... If you were to rule in a case uh, involving a company where you owned more than $25 worth of stock in that company, it's a felony. You're going to jail as a judge. Members of Congress do that all the time. Uh, during the health care debate in 2009, you had people on both sides of the aisle, those opposed, those against, who were literally writing amendments, doing things in committees, writing legislation, with one hand, and on the other hand, we're trading large amounts of health care stock at the same time. Well, didn't I read inside your new book, Throw Them Out, that um, even our current speaker, John Boehner, bought interest in five different health care insurance companies, even as he was publicly campaigning to kill the public health care option? Yes, and again, it's always a, a question of interesting timing. He literally bought tens of thousands of dollars of stock in health insurance companies three days before it became publicly known to the rest of us that the public option uh, was dead. And, of course, the public option was the idea that the government was going to compete with health insurance companies. So you can imagine when it became known... Uh, the price of all of those uh, stocks went up. You know, to me, we would not tolerate this anywhere else in America. I mean, it's the equivalent of saying a sports athlete on a professional team plays in a game, but also gets to bet on the game in which he's playing. Well, ask, ask Pete Rose how well that worked. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it would not be tolerated in a minute, and yet something far more important which is making laws in our country, uh, that goes on all the time. And literally, there are congressmen that make multi-million dollar bets 
based on legislation that they are backing and that they've put up in the House. Well, I tell you, when we come back, I'm going to share a little bit of information that comes right out of the roll call newspaper in Washington, D.C., that will shed some light on exactly what's going on back there. Uh, Peter Schweitzer is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, Throw Them Out, How Politicians and Their Friends Get Rich Off of Insider Stock Tips, Land Deals, and Cronyism That Would Send the Rest of Us to Prison. You know what's ironic about this? If you, if you just listen on the surface... Ignore the dollar amounts. Just listen to what's going on, as Peter described. You would think to yourself, the founding fathers would never have permitted this to take place. But in 1776 and in the ensuing years after the American Revolution and the passage of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, etc., etc., things like Wall Street weren't on anybody's radar screen, IPOs, publicly traded companies, none of this existed. Now imagine fast-forwarding 250-something years. Our founding fathers, I think, at many levels, not only would not recognize this Congress, but listening to the way the Congress conducts its own ethics today would probably look a lot more like the King of England from whom we escaped than any sense of American freedom and fairness. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Peter Schweitzer, the author... He broke the story on insider trading well before CBS ever touched it. His book is called Throw Them Out, newly published by HMH Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. We'll come back to more insider information regarding the insider trading and more. Kind of the story of what your congressman would rather you don't know as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, uh, if not the whole world, at least uh, the world inside the Beltway. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with our special guest tonight, Peter Schweitzer. The book, Throw Them All Out. How politicians and their friends get rich off of insider stock tips, land deals, and cronyism that would send the rest of us to prison. And this, I think, is the stark irony behind all of this. I mean, between the insider deals and then the other thing, too, that your book talks about. We all know the name Solyndra. The company's based right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We've seen taxpayer loans to private firms owned uh, by congressional and administrative cronies, and nobody even bats an eye. If we did this kind of behavior in private industry, you'd all be going to jail. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, there is uh, a huge connection between people who got uh, green energy loans and grants uh, and and the owners of those companies making campaign contributions and raising money, uh, in this case, for President Obama. I mean, if you did that in the private sector, uh, you would have huge legal problems. And this, I think, is is part of the problem. Uh, The issue related to green energy and Solyndra is a problem of when you give political figures the opportunity to pass out billions of dollars of cash in whatever name you want to attach to it. Um, they're going to tend to give that money to their friends and political allies. It's human nature. Uh, and I think we need to be weary about this and, and simply create a, a circumstance in our country where we're not going to do this. The crony capitalism is destructive. It's one thing if you have the National Institute of Health, we have peer-reviewed panels deciding which you know institutions of learning get which grants. That's not what happened here. And I would argue it would pretty much be impossible to set that up anywhere else 
because presidents have enormous power and authority, and they're going to try to find ways to make sure that their friends are favored. Well, and you know, as we've seen even in the news of recent, you can be a former governor of a state like New Jersey, get a job as the head of a big uh, hedge fund, and then when everything falls apart and they say, well, there's a couple of billion dollars missing, you shrug your shoulders and say, gee, I don't know where it went. I mean, <laughs> this is what's interesting, and so that listeners know that you're just not just making this stuff up. Um, I read a recent report um, Peter, and you might have seen it yourself in Roll Call, newspaper out of Washington, D.C. And th- this is a number that, you know, you talk about the 99 percenters versus the 1 percenters. This ought to open up the eyes of everybody. When we saw the decline in the markets beginning back in the fall of 2008, we all know what the country has been through. The same period of time that the average American saw a reduction in their net worth between losses in their 401ks and IRAs, losses in the value of their homes, etc. The same period of time when the public's average net worth dropped between 25 and 30 percent, members of Congress, the elite 535, saw their net worth increase, increase over the same period of time by an equal percentage. So, you know, we're talking about, what is that, a gap of about 50 to 60 percent? They were up by 25 to 30, while the rest of us were down by 25 to 30, and nobody ought to look at that with a jaundice eye? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the chapters I have in the book is on the financial crisis in 2008, and what you find is that there were a series of briefings that the Fed chairman and the Treasury secretary gave before the crisis became fully wide-known and widespread uh, in the American public to our political figures. Uh, On the night of September 18th, they gave a handful of congressmen, about a dozen congressmen, an apocalyptic briefing that said the Dow is going to go down 20%. We're going to face a major economic crisis. And the Treasury Secretary Paulson, in his memoirs, says that the congressman sat there ashen-faced and stunned. So what did these people do with this information? They got on the telephone is what they did. The the next day, uh, almost all of them went and sold massive amounts of their own stock. So they were able to avoid the losses that we did because they had access to that inside information. There was one congressman who did even worse, uh, Congressman Spencer Backus from Alabama. That next morning, he bought a option that shorted the market. Shorting the market means you're betting, or in this case, knowing that it's going to go down. And he bought a leveraged uh, options trade and literally made $10,000 in that day based on the information he got from the Fed chairman and the Treasury secretary the night before. And this is completely legal, and it's deemed ethical. That's you know, what's stunning. Well, and the amazing thing, too, Peter, I mean, to, to hearken back to one of our more popular presidents, Abe Lincoln, who talked about government of, by, and for the people, when you see that the combined net worth of members of the United States Senate gives them, if we just divide it by 100, uh, they're worth each about 6 to $7 million. Congress itself is worth over $2 billion in net worth. Some of these guys, as we've indicated before, have seen a doubling of their net worth inside of a year or two on a job that only pays $175,000 a year. Of, by, and for the people? Well, it might be for the people, but it's certainly not of and by, because these people in Washington, D.C. do not represent the 99ers at all. They are uniquely and almost exclusively the club of one percenters. What I'm curious about is, with all the angst that we've seen that's been, frankly, focused at a lot of weird locations, I mean, they're 
They're protesting in Oakland. I don't know of the word headquarters of any big financial firm based in Oakland whatsoever. Why aren't we protesting in the halls of Congress? Why aren't we demanding that members of the United States Congress live under the same in rules and, 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 and bylaws that the rest of us have to live under? By golly, if Martha Stewart ought to be held accountable for insider trading, that so should every member of Congress. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, for me, there's a difference. Uh, Somebody like the late Steve Jobs, you know, who became very wealthy, he became wealthy providing goods and services that people wanted to buy. The problem is that I have is people who make large amounts of money through cronyism, through inside deals, through inside knowledge that we don't have. That's the corrupting effect that we're seeing. And I think you see people from uh, Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party who probably don't agree on a whole lot, but I do think there is this recognition that crony capitalism is highly corrupting, highly damaging. It's taking place in both political parties, and it needs to stop. And that's really why I titled the book Throw Them All Out. It's not to say that there aren't good people in Washington, but both sides, everyone, has to have a zero-tolerance policy for this stuff. Well, you're right, and, 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 and there are good people in Washington, and there's a couple of members of Congress that are good friends of mine. Tom McClintock, who was on just ahead of you, was one of them. But you know, the interesting thing, as an aside, is we just talk about the overall averages and, and the, the total history of what we see unfolding in Washington, D.C. Uh, I have long wondered, as I've seen friends of mine that have first gone into, uh, you know, city-level politics. Politics. They run for school board, city council. They move up. Maybe they become a member of the assembly. They get into the legislature. Eventually, they move into the Congress. And I've seen the slow, progressive uh, corruption of them. And I've seen this. What is it about Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway? Is it the water that changes them so that they go from being upright, outstanding, wholesome individuals to suddenly be a bunch of crooks? And now we finally figured out what the deal is. They become thieves because it's legal to. What they would have done on the outside that would have landed them in jail, they can do freely on the inside without reprisals. Ladies and gentlemen, no member of the United States Congress should ever, ever be exempt from the laws that you and I are exempt from under any circumstances whatsoever. And to do so, to allow so ought to be deemed as an embarrassment to this country, and we need to hold their feet to the fire. To which degree I have to agree with Peter Schweitzer. Throw them all out. Let's start fresh. Let's bring some integrity back to Washington, D.C., and let's make Congress live under the laws that it passes for the rest of us. To fail to do so, I think, is an embarrassment to the American experiment and probably is going to head us down the road to our own, ultimately unavoidable, I believe, self-destruction. Throw them all out the book. Peter Schweitzer, the author, my guest on this segment of Lifeline. Peter, thanks so very much for uh, getting me upset. Hopefully we've gotten a few listeners upset, too, upset enough to do something. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.